This week, more fun with funerals as David interviews Wooden Overcoat's Beth Eyre and Felix Trench, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, folks, and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. Sitting in for David Reinstrom, I'm your host for today, Matthew Boudreau. Last week, Sean and Eli featured an episode from Season 3 of Wooden Overcoats. This week, we're going to have a little more fun, specifically Antigone and Rudyard fun, as David interviews Beth Eyre and Felix Trench from Wooden Overcoats. They're going to discuss rival funeral homes, voicing characters, women's representation in audio and theater, and the joys of villainy. So let's dive right in, and I'll talk to you after the interview. Beth and Felix, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you for having us. Yes, thanks for having us, David. <laughs> uh, I, I notice, obviously, the listeners at home cannot cannot see this, but the two of you are wearing uh, matching striped garments. Was this just total coincidence today? Uh, yeah, it was. We we had noticed, but yeah. it's it's a coincidence. Strange coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> look like Breton stevedores or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, is, is, is yours black and white stripes? Is that how you describe it? Yeah, I'd say this is white on black. I, I th- I've got a pocket, you haven't. Yeah, I had thought mine was navy blue, but now I see that perhaps it isn't. Would you call those long sleeves? Or sh- you've got sort of mid-sleeves. Uh, they're, they're, they're elbow-length sleeves, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> I I think this is riveting <laughs> audio content. <laughs> Enough about sleeves. <laughs> Enough about sleeves. Um, Beth, I wanted to start off by asking you, so Antigone Fun isn't the first time you've played in Antigone. You you (laughs) played the classical Antigone in Oedipus at Colonus uh, in 2013 through Audio Scribble. Uh, And I saw that that Felix directed that production. What do you you both remember about that show? Uh, Yeah, that's true. That that did happen. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Lots of things. We we went down to Felix's family home in battle to record that and recorded it on location outside, which I'd never done before, and which was wonderfully atmospheric. And also, you did direct it, which mm. I suppose that hasn't happened for a while. I haven't been directed by that you. That hadn't happened before. No, it was... So obviously I was terrified. Um, not that Felix is terrifying, but it's sort of my default. And you would ask always quite sort of very perceptive and piercing questions before takes about what the character had been doing and what you're thinking about it, uh, which was great. Um, it was a real joy to record, actually. I had a really lovely cast. Uh, haven't yet heard it. But, uh... <laughs> no, the, the rushes are out there somewhere in the ether, but uh, I think the pressures of a group of people getting together to put on quite a complicated thing without really knowing who the audience is or mm. where the uh, the income for the producer is coming from meant that it's uh, it, it still very much exists in potential it was, it was an amazing experience nevertheless just to make it i remember feeling at the time that it was something that everyone was very invested in making and had thought about hugely and I still remember it was cold actually wasn't it because we I think this was November or December we drank a lot of coffee it was cold and uh, we were recording outside in this slightly sort of 
a sort of clearing area in, I suppose, the woods, not far from your house. Call it a glen or a a dale or something. No, dales are different, aren't they? Yeah, and I remember recording a scene towards the end when Antigone knows she's going to die. And, you know, it was amazing. It was was a really amazing thing to be able to do outside in an actual space. Mm. Um, It was incredible. I haven't really done anything like that before or since. On location radio, um, have you done any on location radio, David? I haven't, but I've talked to a lot of people that love it. So I interviewed John Dryden uh, last year about his practice. Um, I've never done it. Fred was always a huge proponent, Fred Greenhalgh. Mm -hmm. I I sympathize. uh, Of all the kind of media that we've worked in, it seems to me to be the one with the closest you'll get to just people talking without too much worry of equipment and um technique getting in the way because uh, it was it was it was on script with a really awful translation but <laughs> the most modern one that I could get out of copyright um which was this Victorian one and uh, that was Andy Goddard who was recording, and he was just kind of scurrying around like a crab <laughs> under the actors, holding a little Zoom microphone to try to capture them. Um, no, it was it was a delight, and everyone was brilliant, and it was uh, it was a real passion project to get together a group of actors that uh, I wanted to work with uh, on texts that I wanted to work on, and. Just do it. What would have to happen for that production to see the light of day? Um, I think possibly I'd need a kick up the arse to uh, <laughs> go and sort out how the money's going to work. We did one interview with an academic afterwards on Antigone. Um, uh, yeah, I think it, a lot of it just kind of fell off the plate for me um, when other jobs, I mean, well, largely overcoats, mm. came along and it became more obvious to me that that was where uh, I needed to focus my attention. But it's, it's, yeah, I suppose if you gave me a wadge of cash and said, this is for getting Antigone made and put out, then... We'd do it. Yeah, we'd do it. How did how did the two of you meet? I, I assume, did you meet before that production? We sure did. Um, we met at drama school. Mm-hmm. And actually, in my head, I feel like we met on the audition day, but I may... I think I may have made that up, because... I think you made that up. Yeah. It just feels like I've always known you, I suppose. We met at drama school. We did. Um, I'd say we got to know each other better through, after drama school, through radio drama. Yeah, that's true. So we were at Drama Studio London. Um, we weren't on the same course, so it wasn't as if we were having classes together. No. Although we were aware yeah. that each other existed, and I suppose we'd seen each other in plays because you see each other's work. Yeah. You were doing Arcadia and things. and. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think after that... We continued to see each other's work for a while. And I think you asked me to get involved in audio scribble stuff. 
eventually including Antigone, but there was there were things before that as well. Yes, well, no, well, that was down to Eleanor Rushton, because before Antigone, we did Oedipus Rex, mm. um, which is available out there. Uh, God, where is it? I think you can get it on audiobooks.com. And that that wasn't on location. That was just in my bedroom with your kind of classic podcast padded walls mic kind of set up. And Eleanor, who uh, was one of the founders of Audio Scribble with me, um, she suggested Beth for Antigone when we talked about the sequels or prequels. Is that right? Yeah, sequels. It was it's prequel in that it was written first. So that was kind of the story of getting Beth involved with the audio script side. But you had your own audio company. Yes, uh, I had been part of a group of people who made some online audio stuff. Some friends from university. I think we used SoundCloud back then. Um, we did a few things. We did some out of copyright audio book kind of stuff, and we also did some new writing. So I think that was one thing we always had in common, that we were both very interested in creating audio work. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of good to cross paths. Yeah, it was a big part of our training was radio drama. Like for a, a year-long course, as I did, or two-year courses as mm. you did, um, a, a surprisingly hefty chunk was in the sound studio. Yeah, that's true, actually. And they broke it up, so we had radio drama classes, audiobook classes, um, some commercial classes. Uh, no, I didn't get those. I think that, that's that two-year only special. That might two-year thing. We only got the radio drama. A radio drama is probably the most fun. Yeah, it's the one that makes you the least money. <laughs> <laughs> Beth, I wanted to ask you, uh, because in, in real life, you're no stranger to working with a sibling. You and your brother Joe run a theater company called Joyous Guard. Yeah, that's right. And you ran not one, but three simultaneous shows at the 2018 Vault Festival in London. How, how would you describe your, your working relationship with Joe? <laughs> it's great that you know this. Um, yeah, I, I've, Joe and I have a really good working relationship. Um, we've always had very similar interests. Uh, there was only two years' age difference between us, and we've always been always growing up interested in theatre, Shakespeare, audio, comedy. So I suppose we have an enormous amount in common, which you don't necessarily have with a brother and sister, and we have similar taste as well. So it's been really lovely, and it's only just begun in the first few years that we're both out of drama school, out of university, in the world, able to make stuff together, which we've always wanted to do. I think sometimes I'm kind of... Uh, the big sister who's been out a couple of years longer and is sort of pointing out how we might get stuff done. Joe has loads of brilliant ideas, but I think everybody in this business is, is learning as they go. But it's, it's lovely to be able to share context and share energy and make stuff together. Yeah, it's really good fun. We, we've always been really fond of the idea of acting together, possibly playing a brother and sister. And that isn't something that's happened yet, but fingers crossed... Um, that might happen one day because I, I think that could be interesting. I, when we were younger, we used to do uh, youth theatre locally and we'd act together a little bit and it would be nice now on the other side, now that we're trained, now that we're real adult actors to see if we could do something together again. Um, so I hope long term that might happen. Cool. And the the name Joyous Guard is an Arthurian reference, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think it's... Um, 
Lancelot and Guinevere are sort of causing major upset uh, and running away together. She was with Arthur initially, and they um, they end up at this castle, which is called Dolores, I think that's how you say it, Dolores Guard, and um, they rename it and brighten it up and let the light in, and it becomes Joyous Guard. And I think uh, it was Joe who came up with a name, but I think for us... Partly it's because we like to do comedy, but also partly it was with the idea that that making our own work was something that we wanted not to be the thing we did because the industry wasn't giving us work, but the thing that was kind of like coming home, that was something we would do throughout our lives and it would be where we did the things we most wanted to do, the things we most loved, and we wouldn't necessarily have to wait for people to do them for us. Um, That's very sweet. Yeah, it is quite sweet, actually. I, I like the name. It's kind of grown on me. I think it's, it's um, people don't always understand what it is, but it's, it's so hard to come up with theatre company names. And I think if it, if it means something to you, that can be nice. <laughs> what, what are your first memories of your involvement with Wooden Overcoats? <laughs> oh, gosh. Because, Felix, isn't there an origin story of you and Tom on a bridge? <laughs> I love this origin story. Yeah, Tom. Tom wasn't on the bridge. Tom you see, was. You see how it's got so garbled? Because in my head, I've been told about this bridge. Um, so, in my understanding, <laughs> it's that Felix threw Tom off a bridge, yeah. I can see so that, that he could race home to Andy and David. No, I don't know. <laughs> this would create. <laughs> the, the complication in all this is that at our various fundraisers. David tells increasingly elaborate versions of this oh, involving. Oh, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, there's one where we were all hiking up a mountain, and my dad afterwards said to me, "Was that true?" Was oh that yeah, no, that dad? was a great story. Oh, that was, that was a complete fabrication. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I suppose my earliest memory is I was walking to meet Tom, who was a very good friend of mine and remained so. Um, was <laughs> he's dead now? Um, oh. All right, P. Uh, all that's left is his beard. Uh, he and I found ourselves at very similar places in our lives and careers, but interestingly, his background was sort of sketch comedy and the kind of university comedy circuit, and and mine was more straight acting. And I'd come up through the drama school route. And the two of us had met on a playwriting course and become very good friends. So I thought maybe the two of us should make a short film to to have something that we could shop around and maybe get some students to help us make it at one of the film schools, that sort of thing. And I started thinking about what that could be about. Uh, and so I started with the relationship and rival is a fun one. And I was on a bridge at the time <laughs> and then just kind of cycled through professions till I found a funny one. Hmm. Uh, so rival funeral directors is a funny sentence. Um, I also liked the idea of rival firefighters as that was quite good. Um, <laughs> How different things could have been. I know, I know, right. Uh, but I suppose funeral directors seemed... More your speed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just kind of uh, matched up with my interests. <laughs> Felix, did I ever show you the, the rival funeral homes in my town? You did, yeah. Brilliant. Beth, hand to God, there are, there are two funeral funeral homes right across the street from one another. Oh, that's so excellent. 
and one is lovely and fancy, and the other one has a little neon sign that points like competition fifteen hundred dollars, our price seven hundred dollars, direct cremation. And you look inside, and it's just caskets on the floor. Oh wow, that's I want to see that. I suppose it's inevitable when you have two businesses of the side of the road that there's always going to be a kind of winner, no matter what they are. Mm. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, Felix, to interrupt you. You were on your bridge. Oh, it was, uh, yeah, well, I kind of went down and chatted to Tom about it, and we fleshed out a few ideas, and then I guess it seemed like a lot of work, and so neither of us spoke about it ever again. Um, and then six months later, uh, I, I had it in mind that I wanted a radio sitcom. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> as you do. Classic Felix. Yeah. Today I would like... <laughs> yeah. So I called him up and said, come round to the flat. And um, he did, because he's very obedient. Um, (laughs) Wow. And that was when Now Look Here happened, because he was just outside the flat, uh, and he called me to say he was outside, and he was trying to think of the most obnoxious way to uh, answer the phone to someone, and he shouted, Now Look Here! And (laughs) so that became a thing. Um, (laughs) And I, I lived with David at the time. So Tom came round. Um, David was in the living room with us. David kind of disappeared with this idea that we were chucking about. And he reappeared, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes later, with uh, a one-page document that kind of uh, sorted out most of the major beats of, of the show. And we said, oh, great. Do you want to write it? And that was kind of it. Wow. Beth, what what do you remember? So I guess for me it starts a bit later. And you'll have to correct me if I am wrong. I I remember you ringing up, actually. I think uh, you rang me up. I didn't pick up. My partner at the time picked up. And when we spoke, you said, David's writing this sitcom about undertakers. Um, Do you want to come and play my sister, who's a mortician? And I said, yeah, of course, because <laughs> I'm very obedient too, it seems. But we it was only a few months previously that we'd done Antigone, and we'd also worked, I'd worked with David for the first time around that time, around the Antigone time, on Drayton Trench with Felix and with Tom. Mm-hmm. So I'd met you both and I knew David's writing, uh, which I thought was very good and very funny. Uh, and then we did a read-through of episode one and four, which I think were the first scripts that were in place. Uh, your flat in Brixton. Yes. Um, and it, I, I was quite nervous and um, the actors were sort of assembled in. You didn't really know what was going to happen from this point onwards. And Andy was there, who I'd met, and John, who I'd never met, was there. And they were very excited and sort of busy thinking about ideas and how things might be done and kind of yelling at each other, which is... Um, a sort of very friendly, passionate way that they have of working together, and I didn't know who they, who John was. Um, so we're talking about Andy Goddard and John Wakefield. Yeah, Andy Goddard and John Wakefield are producers. Yes. Um, who at the time uh, they lived together, and they lived across the street from me. Yeah, they did, didn't they? Yeah. So it was quite an intense Brixton-based. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was all going on, and we we read these two scripts. I think Felix, you'd provided um, quite wonderful food, actually. Which did is, I? yeah, you did. Homemade dips and all sorts. It was lovely. Well done, me. Um, <laughs> and the scripts went. The scripts went down really well. And then there was a sort of moment um, where they were done, 
and you sort of didn't really know what was going to happen next. But I stayed a little bit and everyone just seemed very excited about the possibility of getting things going. Um, I don't know what happened after that. I think I think John was the impetus to make it a full studio show rather than a live show. Mm-hmm. And the idea of trying to reach for the, the highest we could, which you could never do on the budget of a bigger company, weirdly. So that I think we must have had conversations like that. If you ever have the opportunity to watch John listening to a radio script or watch him reading a radio script, do. It's an education. I, I don't know. It's it's like when you see people who can read sheet music, which I have a feeling that maybe he can. He's quite musical. I would have thought so. Um, in that he's, he's kind of reading it whilst the soundscape pops up in his head. Mm. It's this extraordinary genius creative wizard kind of guy. How, how can you tell that he's reading it like a score? Oh, because he'll then say, oh, these are the things that I imagined. Mm. Like, um, I think your survival suit was a really good example. Oh, yeah. I remember... Uh, from the second episode. Yeah. I, I remember <laughs> when we first heard that edit, I went, I'd, it never occurred to me that it would sound sort of astronauty. And his reply was, oh, well, I read it. It was obviously a 60s cosmonaut suit. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Yeah, that thing sounds amazing. Yeah. So we were, well, we are very lucky to have found him. Mm. That's fabulous. How much latitude did the two of you have in developing your characters? I, I mean, I since the project began with all of you together, I, I assume that means that David wrote the characters with your voices in mind. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. That was always the impression I got I kind of gather that's how I was cast that David had sort of been thinking about my intonation speech patterns not sure um but always from David John and Andy they've sort of said do your own voice sort of play yourself and I think that has probably gone for me and you and Tom I mean I'm not quite doing my own voice but um Tom's the closest to himself yeah Tom is playing yeah Tom Tom. similar I mean Without putting on any extra voices, I mean, yeah, very two similar. of us were a bit heightened. <laughs> yeah, a bit heightened, a bit different, so it's removed. But I, I think a lot of how Antigone's written rhythmically sort of fits me very well. Um, I remember we, we've we had sort of meetings with David where we talked about the characters and the series and how things go, and then there's a long development process where Angie and John give feedback on the scripts and then... We have a big weekend of read-throughs before recording the series where everyone has a chance to sort of say anything they feel about the characters or the stories or the language. So it's quite open. I mean, you, Felix, you were kind of involved with it before me. How was, how was Rudyard's inception for you? Um, I think in both of our cases, David took and exaggerated aspects of us yes. um, and then combined them with things that he found within himself and kind of created these these hybrids or possibly people that he saw around. Yeah, he's, he's extraordinarily perceptive like that. It's um, quite peculiar sometimes. Yeah. I don't get a sense that at any point I've sat down with him, not that I can remember, and gone, I think this, I think that, and mm. Rudyard should do this, Rudyard should do that. Um, but 
I think we act as sounding boards mm. for him. Mm. And we give opinions and sometimes those make it into the final scripts and sometimes they don't. And I think we, as a company, we're all quite clear on our different roles mm. and that's sort of why it works. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of people are reading the scripts before they're in their finished state. Mm -hmm. So that there's a lot of eyes kind of checking things. And if, if anyone's uncomfortable with anything or wants to change things, that's there. But no, we do have defined roles. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a whole writing team that David manages. We've had fantastic writers mm -hmm. on the last season. So there's a lot of communication between them as well. But yeah, I suppose in a way the characters are of the main three, four. They've been built for us to such an extent mm -hmm. that there are Pretty fantastic fit most of the time. <laughs> I think Georgie's quite a good example of that. In mm. that she was the one main who, who didn't have... Well, I suppose Madeline didn't have anyone in mind either. But of the human mains, she's the, the one main who didn't have a specific person in mind. And then... Was subsequently built around Kira. Yeah, the character changed quite a lot when Kira came to the read-through. Mm. How would you describe the timbre of Rudyard or Antigone? Like, what... What changes do you make to your vocal apparatus to achieve that character voice? Oh, interesting. Um, well, for Antigone, I suppose it's it's much more on, on breath. It's a very sort of breathy sound, um, which is the sort of thing that you can do much better on a microphone than you'll be able to do on stage because it, it is on breath. It's quite sibilant. It wouldn't carry in a large space so well. I think that's the main change. I also, I guess I've made her a little bit more RP than I might be in all circumstances. I think it was just something about their background, wanting to be clear, and also a sort of precision, because it, it is quite a soft, breathy kind of sound. And also, because of her nervous energy, she often will go very fast. And it, it made a lot of sense for me for the words to also be quite precise. So, yeah, I think she sounds a little bit posher than I do, <laughs> as well as sounding breathier and then it's sort of a, a rhythmic thing where she'll think and speak very fast if she's nervous or or feeling passionate about something and at other times it'll be quite stop start if she's having trouble processing what's going on what about you um i think uh some similarities there rudyard definitely has a more classical rp as well He's a bit further back in the mouth and he's a, a bit more constrained. He, he sort of he happens quite a lot in the throat. Um, mm. And there's, there is a, a staccato-ness to him, which comes from sort of trying to push ideas and sentences out rather than allowing them out. Um, and that eventually leads him to going into sort of <laughs> quite weird realm, so he, he can kind of get much more high-pitched than I usually am. And mm, You have an when, overdrive, don't you? <laughs> yeah, when he gets stressed, he kind of goes up and down <laughs> like a like a terrible oh. waterfall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's funny how you think about it in your head, too, because there are times when Antigone has sort of come in quite low, um, in quite a threatening way, and in my head I, I might sort of think of that or write it as dark, um, mm. just, just sort of as a way of understanding what it is you're doing. And for you, sometimes when Rajad is cross or shouting, there's a sort of over quality. That... He definitely goes up. Yeah. He definitely goes up and he goes loud, which is um, one of my fallback lazinesses that I 
try to avoid. I think it works really well. <laughs> but it's not something you do in, in real life at all. No. I think both of us tend to... We pull back a little bit more into ourselves for the more natural moments mm. and the more real kind of family moments when they're not being put upon. Yeah, that's true. I think especially this season, mm. there are quite a few moments like that where they're sort of allowed to be people and do what, even for them, is quite a sort of natural delivery. Yeah. It's been really fun playing with that. Yeah. Hmm. Beth, I want to know about Snatchback. Can you tell me about that company and what kind of roles you want to make more available for women? Yeah, so Snatchback is a company that I basically founded because I wanted to help redress the balance of sort of ratios of men to women that you see on stage and in audio. And basically, if I had all the resources in the world, there's almost nothing I wouldn't want to do. There's uh, so much stuff I'd like to be making in terms of theatre, in terms of audio, uh, in terms of comedy. And I think things are very much getting better on this front at the moment. And it's something people are becoming more and more aware of. But there is and has always been a disparity with uh, actresses being represented. In fact, there's movements about it now, which is fantastic. Mm. And it's kind of something I really wanted to be a part of. And I am very happy <coughs> to work with all genders on achieving that. For me, it's really about the people on stage or the people behind the mic, the people who are in it, the people whose stories are being told. And I certainly don't want to exclude men, I think, given that we are about 50-50 population-wise. A lot of women's stories involve men. And so I'd, I'd definitely love to do stories that are just about women, but I'd also love to do stories that are about women and men, just making sure that women are represented. So the first stage production we did this year at Vault was a co-pro with Joyce Gard, and we've done some audio work. I'm hoping to do more of that. It's partly about finding the time to sort of balance it with Overcoats and Joyce Gard. I wish I had so much more time, but I'm really excited for the enthusiasm there seems to be uh, in London and indeed globally for making female-led work. So I hope I'll have more things coming up in that direction soon. Yeah. In in the production of Drayton Trench, that Snatchback just did, you played a villain, Violet Darkbloom. I did. Um, what, what do you like about playing a bad guy? And do you get to do it as often as you would like? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I, I think they say the devil has all the best uh, notes. Uh, um, I think villains are often a lot of fun. I guess probably I would like to play some more villains. Violet Darkbloom is pretty fun. She's sadistic. Um, she gets to do lots of fun things. I suppose in an audio sitcom called Hector vs. the Future, I play Mayor Pinch, who feels a little bit like a villain sometimes. Um, she's certainly pretty powerful and hard work and seems to do a good job of thwarting people. And I also recently got to be in Arthur City very briefly as one of the directors who seemed pretty villainous and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's definitely something I'd be interested in doing more. I guess there's a sort of freedom <laughs> in playing someone evil or outlandishly evil. Do you like playing villains, Felix? I think I sort of have to like playing villains. <laughs> yeah. if, you're, <laughs> uh, if you're a British man with sunken eyes and, and that you don't have the, the old heroic jawline, then uh, you're pretty much pigeonholed as 
duplicitous. But yeah, yeah, villains are great. Mm. Everyone's great. Yeah, British villains for the win. <laughs> Hello. Uh, not long ago, Felix, you and I were talking about your issues with the phrase straight man in the vaudevillian <laughs> comic context. Yeah. And how you were dissatisfied with that phrase. Like how if the straight man is supposed to be the audience surrogate, that makes straightness and maleness the normative position. Um, what did you end up picking instead? And what put you on that train of thought in the first place? Um, I don't know if I did end up on anything. Uh, someone else who was involved in that chat, so that was an online chat we were having. Um, uh, Julia recommended foil or comic foil, I think, Julia Shafini. Yeah, I thought that was uh, a really good one. Although I think that there is a slight distinction between the connotations of straight man and the connotations of comic foil. Uh, in that they provide very slightly different roles. Um, what put me on it to it? I I think I was thinking about overcoats, and we. I, I was thinking about comedy in general. And one thing that we find in overcoats is every character has a joke. So um, Rudyard is fussy, Antigone is Antigone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Um, <laughs> Eric is. Uh, perfect. He's perfect. He's Donald Duck's um, evil but nice cousin, um, uh, and so on and so on. But that kind of means that it's a conversation that we've had in the past that you can't you can't have a scene progress if everyone is playing their joke. Yeah. Um, someone at some point has to say, "This is ridiculous." pass me a grape or, or whatever it is that you need for the scene to go on. So the the different characters in Piffling Vale, all of us, we play the straight man or the foil or whatever you want to call it at different scenes, um, which I've always found interesting. I think that's very true, actually. I think even back in the first series, but now as well, you sort of notice, you can tell in Overcoat sometimes this is a sort of Felix-led episode or a Beth-led episode or now a Tom or Kira one. And if if it's an episode that you're leading, oftentimes it's also an episode where I get to be very funny mm-hmm. because I am not driving the plot. I'm just popping in at the side, having a great time. <laughs> Often it will be the village, though. So yeah. So if you've got a, a scene that, especially anything that's wavering heavy, mm-hmm. um, that will involve us just kind of standing at the side and going, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Why is this happening to us? Yeah, and they just sort of take it and make it wonderful. Yeah. I remember that from season one, actually. They do, do it for you. One of my favourite bits. Do you remember that uh, bucket of sand bit? Bucket of sand? It's the wonderful bit when you're lost in the mine, and then Alison turns to her auntie and goes, do you have a bucket of sand? <laughs> <laughs> that is a great moment, actually. Oh, because he's the fire marshal? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So stupidly Those incongruous. Two are great, great together. I love that. <laughs> yeah. How how does the comic dynamic change when it's Rudyard and Antigone, and then Georgie, or versus the three of you and Eric? Like, how does the center of gravity shift in those situations? I think it depends who's got the mad scheme that week. Hmm. If it's a, a Rudyard trying to make money episode. Uh, Antigone will be the voice of reason mm-hmm. and Georgie. I think Georgie, in that kind of straight man and the weird one dynamic, she plays a third character in that she's 
she's just she's often just a bystander who's enjoying what's going on. You can kind of imagine her with a bag of popcorn quite often. <laughs> yeah, she's sort of wonderfully on board for getting on with things. Mm. Um, or even if she knows we're wrong, she's very loyal and just just proactive and sort of a joy to be around in that she will get on board and help with the thing. She'll yes. point out when it's going wrong and when you've been an idiot, but she'll get involved, um, which is good because otherwise we'd probably just stand around yelling at each other forever. <laughs> <laughs> but what happens when Tom comes in? That's a really good question. What happens when Tom comes in? Well, I guess oftentimes there'll be a sort of battle terms being drawn or us realising he's got something that we don't have and mm. sort of upping the stakes. I think increasingly... David and the writers have tried to branch out a little bit from from that dynamic of it just being about us trying to beat him, although mm. we do still have that. Um, I mean, as actors, I think the four of us are so used to each other that any scenes we do have like that, they're usually at fun funerals, we always think of them as the fun funeral scene, yeah. feel very relaxed and as if the characters just sort of enjoy yeah. doing their thing together. So they're certainly lovely to record. Those are often grouped during the recording as well, because if we're low on time, those are the ones that we can kind of bash through the quickest. Yeah, we'll leave till last. Gotcha. Mm. What is your favourite kind of joke? <laughs> favourite kind of joke? I like uh, a lot of absurdist stuff. I like a pun. Mm -hmm. I'm not so big on kind of frat boy gross out stuff. No, me neither. Um, I grew up in Belgium, so I've got a kind of healthy love of people being weird for the sake of it. I once, did I tell you this? My favourite thing I've ever seen. I saw, it was a living statue, a Victor Hugo living statue. And he was leaning forward and he had, it was really, really well done. He had um, a, a billowing coat behind him, big hat. Okay. Uh, he was done to look like copper. He had a, a little bowl in front of him and he just was not moving. And I was kind of staring at him from ages going, you're brilliant, mate. Mm -hmm. And then after a little while, he then also walked out from behind a wall, dressed up as the living statue. Because what he'd done was create a statue of himself as a living statue. What? So that he wouldn't have to stand there as a living statue. And then he used <laughs> to go and collect the money. Unbelievable. <laughs> Which is the most kind of convoluted shaggy dog tail. Um, wow. Yeah. But that's funny. I think humour that genuinely takes you by surprise where you think you know where a gag is going or you think you know what a scenario is and then it somehow surprises you more than you thought uh, is genuinely entertaining. Um, I guess I've got quite a dark sense of humour in some ways, um, kind of like jokes that are character-driven or where you uniquely understand why a character is suffering because you understand them. But then conversely, I also find repetition bizarrely hilarious like the bit where Sideshow Bob walks into all those forks I think that's hilarious I just think it's the funniest thing ever and that's so stupid but <laughs> does it for me um I have a heavy question Ooh. sure um do, do you do you feel that you think about death more often or differently than you would otherwise now that you've been playing these characters um no not really because um, uh, I remember you were telling me your grandmother passed away, and I was wondering if, like, playing an undertaker and talking about death and joking about death has, like, affected the way you think about the end of life and the way it affects individuals and communities. That's a good question. Um, is it is it okay that I've asked that question? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Okay. Um, 
I don't know. I, I, that side of it has always felt very disconnected from me. I think because we treat death on the whole in the show as gross and silly. Um, mm. So we go, we lean very heavily into the gag 99% of the time. The only time that that hasn't really happened was with the end of season three. Mm. I mean, there were a couple of bereavements in the cast around that time and it, it so I, I suppose it, it was certainly resonant but I, I think that the, the real life events had a much stronger impact on me than the show did and uh, are more likely to feed how I would approach similar content in the show in the future if it if it were to come up. So I think that the the direction of travel on the whole for me has gone from life into lines rather than the other way around. Mm. How do you feel? I guess similarly, I mean, I, I've i always thought about death, I think quite a lot, not in a, a sinister way particularly. It's just something that since I was a kid, I've just always thought about a fair bit. So I don't think I think about death more. I think sometimes I think about funerals um, more, maybe more in terms of how we deal with death than in terms of community. When I first came to London, I did a lot of waitressing gigs and quite a lot of them were at weddings and some were at funerals. And I just found that the funerals tended to be much nicer gigs to do. Everyone seems to really be at their best at funerals or want to sort of do their best at funerals. Mm. It's strange, but I think in some ways it can bring out the best in people. And I guess having noticed that, I sort of subsequently thought about the undertakers at funerals I've been to and about the service that they're providing and the fact that they always seem to do it perfectly and thank God, but it, it's a it's a huge thing in some ways. And I guess that's, that's not really what Antigone and Rajat are always doing, but sometimes it, it makes you think about that aspect of it. And I think it was nice to explore a little bit more of the realness of that at the end of season three. I thought that was so beautiful, the end of season three. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it was it was so perfect. Thank you. Uh, I think it's a sort of an amazing achievement for so many people involved in, in terms of David's writing, in terms of Kira kind of, in a way, having maybe not her first chance, but her biggest chance to have an episode that's all about her there have been another one, but not to this extent. And the music is sensational. James Whittle really pulled out all the stops, that end sequence. It's mm-hmm. absolutely stunning. Yeah, I was in the church when he was recording that. Uh, so was Tom, and we were both in tears watching <laughs> the recording. <laughs> Let's, I want to I pull it back to something a little bit less, less heavy. Thank you for that. <laughs> sure. Beth, you recently did a stage reading of Paradise Lost at the Globe <laughs> with a group of academics called Research in Action. Yes, I did. How- I saw it. <laughs> Can you tell me about that project and, and how that performance went? Yeah. Um, delighted that you know about this. Amazing. Um, it went- <laughs> <laughs> Research team. Yay. It went really well. So it was at the, uh, the Wanamaker, which is attached to Shakespeare's Globe on the South Bank. It's um, an indoor venue that's only been around for a few years. It's all candlelit on the inside, a beautiful wooden venue. It's really lovely space to perform. And the idea was to 
to put on a version of Paradise Lost, which was much cut down, and see if it brought anything to the text to stage it. So I studied Paradise Lost at university, so I wasn't coming into it entirely cold, which is great because Milton's language is quite hard, although very interesting. It was a slightly terrifying experience because the directors had decided that we should begin by lighting these four chandeliers of candles by hand. And I had this long stick that I was lighting them with and it would have been okay in rehearsal. We'd learnt how to do this without setting fire to anything like two hours before. And then in the event with a whole sort of three-storey building full of people, even though I didn't feel nervous, I found that my hand was shaking a little bit and this thing was just sort of shaking and it was like having a massive great arrow saying, this girl is nervous, as I lit first one chandelier and then the other before the show really got started. Then we told the story. We were narrators and devils and Adam and Eve, and it was it was a really lovely, lovely event and lovely to be working on that text and seeing what a modern audience made of it. And it was lovely that Felix came along. <laughs> yeah, David did too. We sat up high. You did. Yeah, the the Wanamaker has uh, it's got a stalls area and then two circles, and we were in the high circle, which meant you could see the beautiful painted ceiling. Um, and the candles everywhere. The um, the chandeliers were gorgeous, mm. but because of how low they were held, from our perspective, they quite often obscured the actors. Mm. So you kind of staring at a wireframe chandelier. <laughs> but ah, it was a really pleasant afternoon. <laughs> a, a great time. I'd never been to the Wanamaker before. I'd been uh, intending on going for a while. So it was good to be able to go to see a chum do something. That was great. Nice. Beth and Felix, thank you so much for coming on RDR. This was an absolute treat. Thank you. Thank you, David. Come on back anytime. One of my favorite things about Wooden Overcoats is the witty and charming approach the show takes to gallows humor. Having recently lost my father-in-law, it occurs to me that how we face and interact with death is, to me, as important as how we face and interact with life. And one of the graces of humanity is our ability to smile, laugh, and find hope even in our darkest moments. Not that Wooden Overcoats is particularly dark. As Felix mentioned, their approach leans heavily into the comedy, similar in style to one of my favorite funerary films, Death at a Funeral. But much like Pandora's Box, it is good to know that we can reach into the darkness and still find hope and humor. If you like this interview, check out Wooden Overcoats by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. While you're there, we hope you will subscribe to Radio Drama Revival and leave us a rating and review. If you like what you're listening to, we hope you'll help support our crazy, talented team with a monthly donation at Patreon. Your donation gets you access to discussions, extended interviews, and behind-the-scenes material. Check us out at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And now, credits. Our theme music is Danger Digidoo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find him over on SoundCloud. Our interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau. Our social media manager is James Oliva. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge. Filling in for your host, David Reinstrom, I'm line producer Matthew Boudreau, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. 
storytellers welcome. <laughs>